him. Yeah, so my name is Adam Darbone. I'm the Generations Pastor, as, as Tim said. I oversee all of our 0 to 18 ministries at New North Church. And so uh, I'm really glad to be with you. It's, an, it's always an honor and a privilege to preach the Word of God, but it's especially an honor and a privilege to come do it here and with you and to meet you all. I met some of you before the service. Um, so thank you for having me. And I know McKenna was here last week, and she, she just sung your praises when I saw her on Monday. So um, I'd like to begin this morning with a, a little bit of a confession for you. We don't know each other, but I'd like to confess something to you. Uh, that many times in my Christian life, I have doubted God. For instance, just in the last year, I've doubted whether God really changes people. I don't know if you've ever wondered that. I've doubted whether God was really in the process of restoring the world that we live in. It sure feels like it's getting worse, not better. I've doubted whether, um, whether Jesus was really the son of God or just some huckster that was really good at convincing people and tricking people. I've doubted uh, whether it's worth it to give up stuff for Jesus. I've doubted whether or not Jesus is even alive in me. At this point, you're wondering why, who let this guy up preach, uh, <laughs> right? But I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that for those of you who are here and you are Jesus followers, that I'm not the only Christian in the room that's ever doubted God. And so I'd like to actually, so now I've confessed something to you, I'd like for us all to confess something. And so if you're a Christian and you've ever had doubts about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, would you just join me in raising your hand with me? Yes, great. That's most of you yeah, great. You can put your hands down. Um, this is great news, by the way. This is like really good news. If you're a Christian, this is great news for you because it means you're, all your doubts are normal. And if you're not a Christian, this is even better news for you because you thought one of the things that you had to get all settled before you could become a Christian was you had to get rid of all your doubts. And you had to be sure about everything, but that's not actually true. We all have doubts. And in fact, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we read about a man, one of the greatest spiritual giants of his generation, doubting whether Jesus was really the Messiah, the promised king that was going to come and save and restore the world, or if he was just another man. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and you can open them up to Matthew chapter 11. Meet me in Matthew chapter 11 this morning. And as we dive into our passage, we're going to gain insight and get a blueprint for how we should deal with our doubt and how Jesus deals with our doubt. And so our passage starts this morning for a little bit of context. John the Baptist is in prison. Now John is a guy, uh, he was a preacher who baptized a lot of people, so we call him John the Baptist creatively. And he basically had one sermon. And he would go around the Judean countryside preaching one sermon and it went something like this. It just went, repent. Repent, repent. So he had like repent part one, and then he had repent part two, repent part 46. Like he just preached the sermon over and over and over again wherever he went. And, and he would tell people to repent of their sins, and he warned them of the grave consequences if, he didn't, if they didn't. That the kingdom of God was coming in fullness soon, and they needed to repent before it came. And there was this ruler in Judea at the same time, his name was Herod Antipas. And Herod had a wife named Herodias. And her, it wasn't actually Herod's wife, it was Herod's brother's wife. But Herod was a little richer, a little more powerful, maybe a little more attractive. So Herod wrote a letter to his brother's wife and said, hey, you should, you should leave him and come, come marry me. And Herodias did that. 
And uh, I don't know about what it's like in your family, but that was not cool at the time. No, that was not supposed to be done. You're not supposed to marry your brother's wife. You're not supposed to steal her. Um, so, and also just sort of like bonus sin, she was also his niece. So like all kinds of messed up family stuff going on here. But unfortunately for Herod, Herod uh, John loved to incorporate current events into his preaching. And so anytime John's like out there preaching his repent sermon, right? Repent, repent of your sin. Don't be a sinner, repent. And, and every time he needs like an example of someone who's sinful and not repentant, he points at Herod. And he goes, look at that guy. Don't be like that guy. He married his brother's wife. He, mar- he married his brother's wife. Everywhere he'd go, every time he'd see Herod, he married his brother's wife. As you can imagine, free speech has its limits in first century Rome. Right, or in first century Roman Judea. And so this infuriates, it bugs Herod, but it infuriates Herodias, Herod's wife slash his brother's wife. And so she gets him thrown in prison. She convinces her husband to throw John in prison. And that's where we kind of come into our story today. John is sitting in this prison because of what he's been preaching. And meanwhile, Jesus has been going around. He's arrived on the scene. He's been teaching. He's been doing miracles. He, but he hasn't been bringing the wrath of God like John expected he would. He hasn't overthrown the Roman government. He hasn't even started, like, collecting people and weapons to that end. He isn't even in the capital where things happen. He's just roaming around the countryside, teaching, doing some miracles here and there. And from John's perspective, everything is just as it's been for generations. Nothing is changing. And so John sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. So this is where we're going to pick up our text this morning. Look with me at chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. It says this, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect something else? Do you see what's happening here? John is rotting in prison. He's suffering shame, hunger, physical torment, emotional struggle for preaching the eschatological message that God's Messiah, the King, would return and God's rule and reign over Israel and the world is close at hand. And while he believed that that man was Jesus, And in fact, he's the guy, John is the guy that told everyone else that Jesus was that guy. But now, things don't really look like they're changing. And he's sitting alone in this dark place, and doubt begins to creep in. He starts wondering, was I wrong about Jesus? Were those moments that I thought I heard from God just emotional trickery? It doesn't seem like Jesus is really changing things. Maybe he's not the man I thought he was. Maybe there's somebody else. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in that dark cell with John before. I know I certainly have. Maybe you're there now, right? Those, those are familiar doubts to you. But John, never being one to shy away from conflict or bluntness, sends his disciples to just ask Jesus straight up, Are you the one? Are you the one we're waiting for, or should I be waiting for someone else? And Jesus' reply is amazing here, because what Jesus could have said is, John, I know you're suffering. Don't worry, man. Me and your disciples, we're coming tonight. We're going to break you out, 
right? We're going to end your suffering, and then I'll, and I'm going to prove to you that I'm the one, right? You'll know it because I, when, I, when I break those chains, when those bars open, you'll know when your suffering is over that I'm the one. Jesus doesn't do that. Isn't, when we suffer, isn't that the first thing you want, right? Isn't that the first thing you want from God? That's your first prayer. God, just take this away. Take this suffering away from me so I know that you're God, that you're real, that you love me, right? But no, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus also could have, like, assured John, right? John, look, I, I know, I know it's hard to suffer, but I am the one you've been waiting for. And he could have explained to John, like, that suffering is part of this. This is, this was the whole plan all along, right? Like, I'm the Messiah, I'm supposed to, I, even I'm going to suffer and die, and, and so, and my followers are all going to suffer, and, like, this is just part of it, and, and explained why he was suffering. Because that's the second thing we want when we suffer, Right? One, if God's not going to take it away, at least help us to under, help me under, understand why I'm suffering, why I'm, because if I just understand why I can keep going. I can push through this if I know why, but it just seems pointless. But Jesus doesn't do that in, either. And so instead, Jesus responds this way, starting in verse 4. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. So Jesus points back to all the things he's been doing. Now, I think John's disciples who are there are probably confused at this point. They're like, yeah, but are, but are you the one? Like, that was our question. You listed off, great. It's great, all those things, but are you the one? So Jesus points back to all these things he's been doing. He points back to the sermons he's been preaching and the miracles he's done. As if to say, I know it seems like nothing is happening in your dark little cell in Herod's prison. But out here, I am turning back the tide of sin in the world. I'm changing things out here. I'm reversing the curse of humanity. And though you can't see the major implications yet, this salvation I'm bringing has begun. And actually, though, Jesus' words are even more poignant than that. The point is, is even bigger than that. Because... Each one of these lines is either a direct quotation or a really strong allusion to a, a line in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied about this coming king. And so I, I remember when I was a kid, I was watching this TV show, and there was a guy who made $20,000 on the TV show. And let me tell you, as a 10-year-old kid, my first thought was, that guy is loaded rich. That guy has so much money. If I made $20,000 every year, are you kidding me? That's like... Uh, that is so much money. And, uh, and it wasn't until I got much older and then I started paying bills. And then I started, right, I started paying rent in the Bay Area. I started seeing what other people make. And I realized, okay, 20 grand is not an insignificant number, but it's not, it doesn't make you rich. And, and so my 10-year-old self, like, I needed some context. I needed some comparison points to understand what that number really meant. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing for John here, right? Jesus is giving John some context. He's giving John some points of comparison to help him see the bigger picture and understand what's really happening. And, and so these deeds that Jesus is doing, these things that Jesus is doing, don't seem significant to John. But when they're placed in the backdrop of what Isaiah says the Messiah is going to do, when you compare them to those points, John can see more clearly the implications that Jesus is who he said he is. Isaiah's promise 
Isaiah's promised Messiah was to bring holistic restoration to God's people. But, and, and this is really kind of unique to Isaiah, Isaiah really pushes forward this idea that the Messiah is going to suffer. And so all of this would have come to mind when John heard the way that Jesus related what he'd been doing. And so Jesus meets John in his doubts by putting his works into context. And, so, and when you doubt, Jesus will do the same thing to you. Bring your doubts to Jesus. Go to Jesus with your doubts. And Jesus will do the same thing. Ask him to show you that he's still the one. He's still the king. And look back on his works, his works in scripture, his works in your life, and put those into the, in the context of scripture and who, what scripture says about Jesus and about his followers. And so maybe this means spending a half a day alone journaling and reading scripture and praying. Maybe it means picking up a good book on apologetics or Jesus or that will help inform your doubts. Maybe it means talking about your doubts with someone you respect spiritually. And whatever that means for you, go to Jesus with your doubts and when you doubt. Let's keep moving in our text this morning, though. The thing you've got to know is that John is the one who told everyone that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was just some guy, and, then, and, and so John is the one who, when Jesus showed up on the screen, said, that's the guy, that's him. And now he sent his followers to ask Jesus in front of a crowd of people if Jesus was really the Messiah. And so you can imagine the crowd who's already beginning to doubt who Jesus is is now having really serious doubts because if John doesn't believe anymore, then should we? And so Jesus turns and addresses them. And so look with me starting in verse 7. It says, and John's, and John's disciples were leaving. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothing? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. And I tell you more than a prophet. This is about the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. Jesus essentially tells the crowd to trust their instincts. They knew that John was someone special, which is why they went out in the wilderness to see him. He wasn't a reed swayed by the wind. He wasn't someone who just said what people like to hear. He wasn't, uh, he certainly wasn't dressed in fancy clothes, like a king or some other important famous person that everyone came and flocked to see. He was, uh, right, those people live in city centers and palaces, and that's ironically where John is living now, even though it's in a prison. No, they went out to see a prophet. They, well, they went out to see someone who spoke the very words of God to them. And they were drawn out in masses because he was something special. He was different than anyone they'd ever seen. You see, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel in 300 years. No living person had seen a prophet, but when John showed up, they knew he was a prophet from God. And Jesus says, yes, and even more than your average run-of-the-mill prophet. John is even more than that. He says... He was the one of, that was written about in the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, right before God went silent for 300 years when God promised that he would send this king, but he, he first promised he would send a messenger, a prophet, to prepare the way. And Jesus says, John's that guy. John's that messenger. But he goes further, and starting in verse 11. He says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, that's everyone, 
right? It's everyone. But among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to the people who have doubts about him. And so he starts with what they do know. That John the Baptist was a great man. In fact, the greatest man who would ever live to that point. And what the crowds are wondering is, if John's so great, if John's really a prophet sent from God, if John is doing the Lord's work, then why is he suffering? Why are bad things happening to him? And Jesus answers that, of, that of course, the kingdom of heaven is going to be attacked. Of course it is. There are people who don't want the kingdom of God's rule to, become, to come because they will lose out on something. They'll lose out on power. And as the kingdom comes on earth, as it is in heaven, people are going to try to snatch it away. And they're going to oppose God's rule, and they're going to try to grab hold of it for themselves. After all, Jesus says, all of the prophets and the law point to John. That John was the Elijah who was to come. Now, John, Jesus is drawing our attention back to the prophets of old, and particularly to Elijah, who was supposed to, uh, to return to prepare the way for the Messiah. As if to say, remember their lives? And I don't know, do you guys, like, I don't know how often or how recently you've read the Old Testament. Have you, you remember the lives of the prophets? How well did it go for the prophets? Not well. How well did it go for Elijah? Not super well. Like all of the prophets' lives are filled with suffering and pain and most of them death. And so, and, uh, and so, and so Jesus is pointing everyone's attention back and say, remember the prophets. Remember what it was like for them when they spoke the word of God and then people violently opposed them. So do you see what he's saying? He's, he's telling these doubting people, you need to realign your expectations of what it looks like for someone who's sent by God. It's, he's encouraging them to look back at God's people in the past and say, look what happened to them. Because every time that God's spirit and word has broken through, it's been violently opposed. And the violence that the, the violence that the kingdom of God, and specifically John, is suffering right now, is not evidence that the kingdom of God isn't coming. It's evidence that the kingdom of God is here. And so here's what I think happened. Right? The crowds, they've been, they've been walking around, listening to John, listening to Jesus, talk about the kingdom of God. And hearing about how God is going to come back. He's going to make all things right again through his Messiah. He's going to rule in perfect justice and mercy, and there's not going to be oppression anymore. But they've forgotten what it was going to take for that to happen. See, that sounded good to them, but they forgot what it was going to take to get there. They wanted the prize, but they didn't want to run the race. Because we're wired that way as human beings, right? We're wired to see the end without considering what it's going to take to get there. And the kingdom of God sounds great to the crowds. But as soon as violent oppression comes, they begin to doubt whether the kingdom is really ahead of them at all. And this is important. This is important for you and me because of what, what Jesus says in verse 11. Because he says that even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. See, what Jesus is saying, what makes John 
the greatest human being to date is that he had the clearest picture of the Messiah of anyone who's ever lived. The men and women of Israel, the great prophets of old, had fleeting glimpses of who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would be like and what he would do. But John is the prophet preparing the way of the Lord. He has a more complete picture from God of who that Messiah is than anyone before him. And so he could actually point to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth and he could say, that's him. That's the guy that God sent. That's him. He's the king. But even John didn't fully understand. He didn't get all of it. He didn't see the whole picture. And so, because even someone who became a Christian five minutes ago, who knows nothing about theology and church history and Bible exposition, can say, Jesus came to die for my sins so that I could be raised to life again. Right? If you can't say that, in what sense are you a Christian? Right? Anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time, even just a couple of minutes, can say that, but John couldn't. John didn't know that. John didn't know that Jesus was going to suffer and die on the cross. John didn't know that God was going to raise him from the dead. He could point to Jesus, but he didn't know all of the implications. And so this is how Peter, the Apostle Peter, puts it in his first letter the New, in the New Testament. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets of old, spoke the grace that was to come to you. They searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told, told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these See, what made John the greatest man to ever live at this point, to, the, to that point, and what makes you even is your ability to accurately point out who the Messiah is. It's your ability to point to God's king who rules and reign, reigns over the earth and say, that's him. That's the guy. It's Jesus. But listen, from John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. And so if you are in the kingdom of heaven, even if you are the least in the kingdom of heaven, you are going to experience opposition and violence. It's normal. Increasing in your world and in your life and not evidence against it. And so you need to realign your expectations a little bit. When you pray for something, Something good even, whether it's physical healing or success or a new job or a relationship or whatever else, and it doesn't happen, and you're left disappointed and frustrated and full of doubt. Realign your expectations. Go back to Scripture. Read God's promises. Read biographies, stories about God's people in the past. Talk in your small group or with friends about the doubts you have and help them. let them help you realign your expectations for what it means to live as a Christian. Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. He knows this is a hard thing that he's saying. But if you don't realign your expectations, doubt will continue to grow. And it'll grow and it'll grow and it'll eventually lead to unbelief. Not because Jesus is any less obviously the king, the Messiah who's going to save the world. But because your expectations for the Messiah and for the kingdom weren't totally aligned with what God promised in the first place. 
as we get to the last few verses of our chapter or of our passage this morning, Jesus shifts his tone a little bit. And so far he's been talking to people who have doubts, right? People who believe but have been doubting who he really is. And but now he kind of shifts and he begins to begins to speak to those who simply refuse to believe. And see, because see, doubt and unbelief are different. And I, I like the way Alistair McGrath puts it. He says this. He says, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It's a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It's a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust. John MacArthur writes, you have to believe something before you can doubt it. Jesus has been addressing people who believe, but are beginning to doubt. And now he speaks to those who have hardened their hearts to the point of unbelief. And I suspect that there are few people in this room this morning in both camps. Right? There are many of you who are, uh, you're, you've been following Jesus, but sometimes you have doubts. And that's okay, and we've been talking about how to deal with that. But there are others of you who simply refuse to believe. And so Jesus has something to say to you this morning as well. He says this, starting in verse 16. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you didn't mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus compares those who refuse to believe the children playing in a marketplace. The, in the ancient marketplaces, children used to play games where they'd pretend to be adults and do adult-like things, um, like, we, like have weddings and funerals. And so they play their pipes like they were at a wedding, and they sing sad songs like they were at a funeral. And they try to rope in passing adults, adults who have gone to the marketplace to do their business, right? And, and they try to rope these adults in as they walked in to play with them. And kids still do this, right? Like if you have a four-year-old at home, they want to play house. And, you, and they want you to play with them and be a part of the little mini world, the mini adult world they're creating. But it, and you do, right? You play along, and you, you play with them, and you do the whole thing, and... But if something serious happens, if you have real grown-up business to attend to, you put down the fake plate and the fake food, fake food and you go take care of it, right? And this is what Jesus is talking about. Those who refuse to believe are like children sitting in a marketplace who are, saying, who are playing their pipes, saying, dance for our wedding and look sad for our funeral. But Jesus has real, like, grown-up Weddings and funerals to go to. He's got real people to heal and real lives to change. And so they think the Messiah should act like they want, like he should say the things that they want. And, but he's got more important things to do than play to their vanity. And some of you, this is, this is you this morning. You want Jesus to do all kinds of things, and you think Jesus should do all kinds of things, and you're, man, you're convinced about it, right? Jesus should vote Republican or vote Democrat, right? You just know it. You think that Jesus should make your life comfortable or successful or at least less painful. You think that Jesus should stop saying such hard and antiquated things, or you think that Jesus should take a harder stance on your pet issue or cause. But Jesus didn't come to do your will. It didn't come to do my will either. He came to do the will of the Father and no one else. 
And we, and we don't get to always understand and see the big picture. We don't get to see it all. And when you play your pipe for him, and you expect him to dance to your tune, or else you're going to reject him, you subjugate the king. He becomes the jester in your court instead of the king on his throne. And many of you, even most of you, who are, be- are believers who experience doubt, and that's okay. I want you to hear that this morning. That's okay. That's normal. We all, any, any Christian who's ever lived have experienced doubt. But for those of you here who just re- simply refuse to believe, Jesus is beginning to call you out this morning. He's calling out your unwillingness to, be- to believe no matter what. And he highlights this in the last couple of verses, right? He says, John came neither eating nor drinking. And you, and, you said, uh, and you said he had a demon. But I came, the Son of Man came, eating and drinking. And you said that I was a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, right? You can't have it both ways, right? What is he saying? He's saying these people aren't going to be happy no matter what I do. These people simply refuse to believe and they'll never be happy. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. In other words, my actions speak for themselves. If this is you this morning, Jesus is calling you to check your heart this morning. Are you in charge? Nothing he can do could ever satisfy you and meet your standards, or is he in charge? Listen, every one of us is going to doubt. Every one of us is going to doubt. Doubt is okay, and it's important, but it's important that you deal with your doubt. Deal with your doubt. Check your heart. Realign your expectations to match up with what we read in Scripture. Go to Jesus with your doubt. Jesus has given us a blueprint this morning for how to deal with our doubt, but I want to show you one more thing in the text before I sit down. Jesus has told you how to deal with your doubt this morning. He's also told you why you should deal with your doubt this morning. You might have missed it. It was in verse 6. Jesus says this. He says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That word stumble is the word scandalizo. It's where we get our word scandalized from. And it means to be so offended by someone that you walk away from them. When I was in high school, uh, I I played water polo, and I had this water polo coach just demanded excellence and demanded a lot from his players. And so when you messed up, he was this, like, old, crusty Croatian dude, like, leather tan Croatian dude. And he would say things like, when you messed up, he'd say things, do you want a banana? Do you want a banana? In his thick Croatian accent, I never wanted a banana. And he would say... (laughs) And then he would say things like, uh, my grandmother could, could do better than that. My grandmother could made that pass. And I never met his grandmother. But boy, she was an amazing woman, let me tell you. And, uh, and, but one day, man, I just, in the, it was the middle of the season, my last year playing for him. And I was just, I was done. There was some stuff going on in my life. And I just had, I was tired. It all felt pointless. The, the hard work, the attention to detail, the lifestyle this guy required of me just seemed too much. I wondered if it was all worth it. And then I was at practice one day, and I made a little mistake, and he, he asked me if I wanted a banana and said some hard things to me, right? And I was like, that was it. I was done. I started like, I was done. I was, I'm getting out of the pool. I start swimming to the edge of the pool. And I'm about halfway to the edge of the pool, I mean, ready to quit before I realized, okay, I can't. Like, I can't walk out on my team and my coach like this. This isn't the right way to do things. And so um, we had some words, and then I went back into the, <laughs> to play. And I'm so glad I didn't, right? Because 
uh, the, all that that coach required of us paid off. It ended up being kind of the best season in any sport I'd ever played. We, it was my biggest accomplishments in sports came that year. I had more fun playing on that team than any other team I've ever played on. Here's the point. There will be moments in your Christian life where you want to quit, where you want to walk away from it all, even devastating moments when Jesus is not who you expected him to be, when Jesus allows things to happen in your life that you don't understand and continue in your life, when putting your faith in him and following him is harder than you thought it would be, when Jesus says another hard thing that you don't want to hear, There will be moments in your life, like in John, where you will be sitting in your dark cell of doubt, wondering if you got it all wrong, if there's someone else. But don't quit when that doubt creeps in, because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. And our hope is assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It cannot perish, spoil, or fade. Jesus is the king, and his rule and reign will soon be revealed. He will restore all things and you will experience the blessings of his kingdom fully come and his will fully done on earth as it is in heaven. So in the meantime, deal with your doubt. Because blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of him. Will you pray with me? Father, forgive our doubt. God, we, we, we are fragile human beings. And we, we, we come, we are like the grass. We come and then we fade away. But God, we pray that you would assure us in our doubt, that you would, that in suffering you would give us perseverance and that would produce character and hope, that we would hope in the resurrection glory that you have for us. God, we pray, we ask, we beg that you would meet us in our doubt, meet us in our struggle and our suffering and that we would be assured once again that you are who you say you are, that you are the one. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to take communion together right now. Communion, this is a time of remembrance and reflection about what Jesus has done for us and going to the cross and suffering himself and dying for your sin. It's also a sign, though, It also points forward to the day when we will all, when all believers will sit at a great banquet table before God and will feast on his goodness. And so I'm going to invite the communion team to come forward and pass out the elements. And once they've done that, we'll take of the elements together.
I'm no longer a slave to fear, and I am a child. Stand with me and sing this next. 
Jesus, 